Welcome to Re-Engage, the Next Generation Podcast. We are all people of a certain age who grew up watching TNG, and as we looked at the dumpster fire that was 2020, we longed to go back to a time when all we had to worry about was getting the TV turned on in time to watch the show. We watch each episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and talk about what resonates with us the most from the performances, the script, and the production as a whole. We also look at the pop culture and world events that surround each episode. Returning to the series as adults is like being wrapped in the warm embrace of a season one Wesley Crusher sweater. Join us as we re-engage. And here we are again for the last outpost. We are so excited to be here. Before we get started with the last outpost, let's go ahead and meet everyone else who is going to be talking on the microphone today, starting with Mr. Greg Tito. How are you, Greg? I am very good, but I'm also very entertained by Jimmy doing his best uh, Ferengi impression. Yes, very Very good good. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of motion, uh, moving around. I'm here for it, and I can't wait to get into this episode with y'all. Excellent. Speaking of Jimmy, Jimmy G is here. Well, first of all, I want to speak on the vulgarity of Kate wearing clothes during this episode. (laughs) So human of you. Human. Human of you. I'm very happy to be here, uh, and I'm excited to see what you guys think about this episode. We are excited. It's going to be a whiz-banger. A whiz-banger indeed. Speaking of whizzing and banging, it's Eric Gratton, everyone. I have done both of those things. It is true. I am sitting here just ready to talk about these weird-ass electric whips these Ferengi be using, and uh, I just can't wait to get started. Thanks for having me over again. <laughs> we are indeed at our first episode where we get to see the Ferengi in the flesh, as it were. Stardate 41386.4, original air date of October 19th, 1987. This episode had an 8.9 on the Nielsen rating scale, which means that 8.9% of all households with a television set watched the program. That's how the Nielsen ratings work. Ooh. Wow. 8.9 million. So how many? That's exciting. 8.9% of all households with a television set. Right. But how does that transfer into actual numbers of people? Every year they come out with a new number for what is the number of households that have a television. And I think it's just uh, by household. So I don't know how that exactly translates into uh, per person, but definitely gives you an idea that uh, what we were really into back then was not so popular with the rest of the television watching universe. But if you compare it to like genre television of today... That is a crap load of people watching a single episode of television, right? Like, even if it's 8.9, it's definitely more than, uh, you know, you got to say, like, at least 100 million people have TVs in the United States, right? So it's more than 8.9 million, which Well, now you just blew huge, my mind with math. Right? <laughs> I'm not very good at math, but I know that much. And, uh, you know, you, you think about what's happening now with the amount of uh, uh, the, 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 when, they, when they report on numbers of people who are watching, say, like The Walking Dead or, or um, uh, Game of Thrones, it's in like the five to ten million of people who are watching it. So this episode had more people watching it than the most popular episode of those shows, which is important to keep in mind, even though it's on the lower scale. Right. Yeah. 
You just made me feel uh, pride, and I don't know what to do with that feeling. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of it is there were four channels then, yes. and there are, you know, hundreds of channels to choose from, both uh, on the internet and uh, using the tele the, the primitive art form of television as as we now know it. Uh, it's it's an impressive number indeed. It's part of what we've I think lost in the last forty years is kind of that universal um, experience that every kind of you know lover of alternative fiction had. Like we all had the touchstones of these five TV shows, you know these four popular novels and Dungeons and Dragons, and now there are how many? hundreds of of sci-fi and fantasy properties to choose from uh there are uh so many video games and movies and tv and uh, anime and manga and everything else you can be whatever kind of nerd you want to be and we can't all necessarily speak that common language unless you're a cultural critic and it's your job to consume that you know 24 hours a day it's it's fascinating we are in the zeitgeist that just sounded right. cool. I just felt like I should say that. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> yeah. While this episode was airing, uh, Lost in Emotion by Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam was number one <laughs> on the Billboard chart. But Bad oh, yes. by Michael Jackson was making its way and was soon to overtake. And one of those songs has lasted longer, I will argue, than the other song. I had to go back and listen to Lost in Emotion and rediscovered that it is a delightful video set at a carnival full of frivolity and skipping. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about the video until you started talking about it. It does have that night moves kind of quality, doesn't it? Everybody's at the carnival. Yeah, the, you, you know, you're, you're all doing one of the dances from Breakfast Club. Make it, you know, it's really amazing. <laughs> we uh, we were on a break during this episode of we were two games into the World Series, but this was an off day. And the World Series that year was between the St. Louis Cardinals and anyone? Boo. The Minnesota Twins. Right. The series would go all the way to Game 7 with the Twins taking the prize and was the first World Series to feature games played indoors and the first in which a home team won every single game. The Metrodome. That's right. That's fun. History yeah. was made. And the Cardinals were, up until that point, sort of Ooh. unstoppable. I know, I know. Derek has strong feelings about the Cardinals. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Royals-Cardinals was our tiny little version of Yankees-Red Sox out over there where the winds blow hard, you know. I remember watching the Twins one because there was like the youngest manager to win. I feel like he was like a young manager. Is that crazy, Eric? Do you have any remembrances of uh, the Twins of 1987? I do not. I do not. I know I would have still been collecting baseball cards, but so much liquor went through the old brainwaves in my twenties <laughs> that I lost most of my early te early teen years. So, uh, in addition to being delighted with this rewatch of uh, a show that I had seen at least six times and I'm remembering almost nothing of, uh, does... I, I don't have a whole lot of memories of of the teams that weren't the Royals when I was growing up. It does take me back to watching it in a wood paneled room, not a similar from what you have uh, in the background there, Kate, and watching yeah. uh, uh, that World Series along with uh, these TNG episodes. So I am, once again, nine years old uh, on my ratty plaid 
flannel couch uh, watching all of these things with my parents. <laughs> Well, the final thing I should mention around the world that was happening, besides the fact that Anything Goes opened uh, their revival at the Beaumont Theater in New York City, going on to win the best Tony for best revival of a musical. But that day that this episode aired was Black Monday. Stock markets around the world suffered an unexpected dramatic drop, with the American Dow Jones Industrial Average falling 22.6%, or 508 points, the largest one-day drop in recorded stock market history and the first financial crisis of the modern globalized era. Black Monday. The era of greed. Uh, you know, the um, Andy Garcia, uh, color of money, all that stuff just feels like it was reaching this pinnacle. Hey, Michael Douglas? Yeah, that's the one, not him. Greed Andy, is I, good, yes. <laughs> I just like Andy hey, Garcia. Andy Garcia was fantastic all through the 80s, but you can't saddle him with greed is good. It's, <laughs> They're all amalgamated into my nine-year-old brain. I'm, I apologize, but it was that I, absolutely it was that idea of uh, unbridled capitalism uh, that was a through line, uh, and it seemed to kind of come crashing down around this time, right in 1987, where it was like, you know what, maybe maybe greed ain't so good uh, around this time. Uh, so yeah, very very interesting. I Black Monday for me, I'll always remember though, because my oldest brother was in college uh, at the time, and I believe he had this newfound freedom away from my parents, and he drank a lot, and uh, did not go to classes on Monday, and told me about this story, and he said like, yeah, that was my Black Monday, was not, <laughs> was not waking up uh, and sleeping all through it, and uh, for some reason, that's that's the detail that is stuck in my brain. <laughs> On a slightly different global level, but just barely. (laughs) Just barely. Well, what an interesting day for this particular episode, which is all about... Uh, the economy and all about uh, capitalism to to air. This teleplay was by Herbert Wright, who has been known as the father of the Ferengi since he wrote first of the two uh, episodes which introduced us to them. Uh, There was some controversy with this episode. Actually, after he dropped it off to get typed, he discovered that handwritten changes were being made to the script before it had even gone to publishing and found out that those changes were being made by Roddenberry's lawyer. You know exactly the person you want to be doing script changes before anybody has eyes on it. Maybe he was a playwright in college. <laughs> and just decided to go hey, like, into I law. Would trust, I would trust like Hunter S. Thompson's lawyer, but I don't know about Gene Roddenberry's. <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm into that. <laughs> Well, it definitely didn't go over well with Herbert. He actually left, uh, he was a co-producer and left TNG after his first year because of continued issues with that lawyer. He returned briefly for part of the fifth season, but even then he didn't make it uh, through the full fifth season. Yeah, and that lawyer ended up uh, souring a lot of relationships between the creatives of that first uh, season. Uh, I remember reading a lot of accounts of just that the way he tried to stiff arm things, and it was he was brought in because Roddenberry had thought that uh, the way the studio treated him around the first series in the '60s, uh, he, you know, he didn't have he was a young he was the first time he was doing something, and so he brought in this lawyer to try to protect himself from the studios changing his creative vision. But I think the lawyer went a little bit too far and ended up having too much of a thumb on those scripts. Well, do you it's think that it was Roddenberry pushing him to do it though? Like, hey, I don't like this. Let's uh, let's axe this. Try to get in there and uh, 
get rid of some stuff and you know like an agent is you're you be the bad guy for me not possible I mean it's guilt like- by association at the very least right <laughs> it was yeah. his lawyer I just love that we're referring to him as the lawyer. <laughs> That's you all know. you know. It's very the Star lawyer. Trek. You know, we have the traveler. We'll be talking right. about. You know, it's just he's he's a he's this mythic villain. He's just uh, this is oh this episode this was the right. lawyer did this he's one. Right. Oh, okay, here we go. Was that even mentioned yeah. in Farpoint where he's like, we've abolished all lawyers. We've killed all of them. Uh, so now I'm judge, jury, and executioner. Oh, wait, no, that's Judge Dredd. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> that, uh, oh, <laughs> the, the oblique Shakespeare reference always there. Yeah. Well, we have several guest stars of note in this episode, and I'm going to focus on the Ferengi themselves. Uh, Jake Ding. I, I don't know if it's Dingle or Dingle, uh, Mike Gomez, Tracy Walter, and Armin Shimmerman. Uh, Jake Dingle is most known for uh, the movie Ironwood, but y'all, he's also in a movie called Prayer of the Roller Boys, starring Corey Haim and Patricia Arquette. <laughs> and it is a movie, I quote, in a dystopian near future America, a young man infiltrates a powerful drug dealing, rollerblading youth gang and yes. run, that runs his town in order to end their reign for good. Mm. I am now obsessed with finding this movie. I am so excited to watch stand it. Stand back and no stand matter, by. <laughs> no matter how niche a genre you can think of, the 80s did at least two movies in Starring it. Starring Cole <gasps> Like, oh. I mean, there's, you know, there's Solar Babies out there, and then there's 14 Solar Babies knockoffs, <laughs> and Solar Babies wasn't even that big a hit. in the queue. You know, it was a knockoff of another one. You know, it's just amazing. Love it. Airborne. You remember that one? Like all of these just ridiculous variations on the skater movie. Oh, this one's in space. It's just, it's amazing. (laughs) Love. Complete love. Well, you know that this one was, uh, was pitched like, no, 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 no. You're thinking roller skates. I'm (laughs) saying roller blades. And then everyone went, oh, okay, it's edgy. All right. Right. What in the hell is a roller blade? And then it goes from there. Does it cut you? So old. We're good. It's going to make millions. Mike Gomez, uh, best known for the Big Lebowski as the auto circus cop. Jimmy, I know that's one of your favorite moments. Can you remind Uh, us? It's one of my top three favorite movies. Yeah, of course. And that is one of my favorite spots. He goes, you got any leads? The dude says, he goes, leads? (laughs) Yeah, they got four detectives on it. They got us working in ships. (laughs) Leads. (laughs) Stop, just stop. He can keep going and he will. You hear the laughter as he's walking away. It's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) Well done, Mr. Gomez. Yes. Not much luck about the credence tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Too bad about the credence. Uh, Tracy Walter is an amazing character actor. He's that guy that's sort of been in everything. Uh, he was Malik in Conan the Destroyer. And mm. I most recognize him as Bob the Goon in the 1989 flick Batman. Eric, you're pretty fond of his death, if I recall. Oh, one of the great deaths. Absolutely. With the Bob gun. He just hands it to him and it's just, it just goes from there. It's just amazing. Um, I, I remember him really fondly as playing just a nonstop uh, series of douchebags, whether it's City Slickers where he was cookie, right, <laughs> down to uh, I remember him as the owner of the chicken shop in Married to the Mob. Like he, he did so many 
little roles in iconic movies. So it's not it's not just that he had that great long varied career, but that so many of those movies turned into classics. It's really just impressive. Speaking of someone who would go on to do something we consider classic, Armin Shimmerman later went on to be given the role of Quark on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And he has often said that one of the reasons he took the role of Quark was to try and undo the damage done to the Ferengi in this episode. So let's get into it. We are promised the Ferengi. They are talked about for multiple episodes. They're the, they're the next big bad guy. And what do we get? Farce. Farce, <laughs> yeah. Big handful of farce. <laughs> Brilliantly produced farce. Exceptionally acted farce. But farce nonetheless. These guys are never dangerous or menacing. They're always hysterical and a lot of fun to laugh at. But there's a lot of dread that leads up to it. That's what I like about this episode is that you don't really see them until halfway through the episode. And then when you do, they've got these oversized faces on the view screen with that white background. And you, you, there's so many shots of seeing like Picard with this huge, weird prosthetic face uh, doing those, those, those looks to the camera. Um, they, they, they certainly try to build up the idea that these this was a menacing race, even if they don't end up being menacing, uh, it's almost like this. Uh, this episode is built up like a uh, like a horror film where you're talking about the monster, and then all of a sudden you see the monster, and they're a little ridiculous. Yeah, a tiny bit underwhelming, as it were. Uh, I was curious how they came up with the the movements that they were doing, mm. and. Uh, Armin has said that the actors playing the Ferengi were directed to jump up and down like crazed gerbils. And in that respect, I mean, mad respect, 100% good job. Yeah, I will take that note and I will do it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and. Of them said, yes. <laughs> and that's the thing. They hired, you know, very consummate professional character actors who'd seen it all so they put them in these prosthetic huge ear goggles and say jump up and down and make funny noises and they're like absolutely how many times how high when do i show up what's going on and it's why it almost works but like what a weird choice (laughs) i mean it's you're reading the script and you're hearing the low cello notes and the tension building up and then you see them, and they're, yeah, they're, they're frogs with, with whips. And, you know, you get this, uh, they're, they're a bit of a character. Not, not the actors themselves. I'll actually stand by the fact that I think that they were 100% committed to the direction and the script that they were given. And, you know, gave to the best of their ability what, what was asked of them. Uh, but what was asked of them was, is in some ways a bit of a problematic caricature of, uh, of a money-grubbing character. Um, we're looking at sort of the tropes and, and um, stereotypes of Jewish characters throughout history. Um, my husband was watching with me and he was like, oh, they kind of remind me of the goblins in Harry Potter, um, mm. which have also been called out for that same stere- yeah. stereotype, um, that those are the bankers with the pointy teeth and the tiny little eyes and the larger nose. Larger nose. Uh, so interesting that that's the path that they went down for you know, yeah, which is also because the script itself very clearly points out that they are supposed to be Americans. Like they're, 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 the idea of Yankee traders uh, is is put out there pretty 
pretty early that they're doing something that is, you know, perhaps unethical, but for the pursuit of profit, right? That's their that's their whole idea that that they are going to buy low and sell high, and uh, you know that's why it's it's apt that Black Monday happens right on the day that they are uh, introduced to us. Um, so it, it was really in the the costume design and the prosthetic design that, uh, and I guess their performances to a certain extent. Um, that the stereotype kind of kind of comes comes about, but it's again it's similar to uh, the last episode we talked about where the ideas were fine, but the execution didn't end up working. Interestingly enough, in this uh, episode, we get uh, some great physical work from our Ferengi, but we also have a wonderful bit of uh, comedic timing um, centered around the the finger cuffs, um, the finger handcuffs. <laughs> I love these the, the finger cuffs. One of my favorite uh, moments in the entire episode. Yeah, the the finger cuffs thing, it just occurred to me, you know, you see in a couple of the touchstone science fiction things or, you know, genre moments of of this particular time frame between here and it's featured very uh, prominently in the Addams Family movie in 1991 a few years later. Like, I remember them being, you know, what you give four tickets at the arcade for or... You know, you get them for half a cent at the carnival. You know, when you're when you win three prizes, you get one of these. They were everywhere I looked, but I also realized that I haven't been somewhere where I've noticed finger cuffs in like thirty years. So, are they still everywhere? You guys have got kids. No. In fact, when my kids watched no. this episode, they were uh, wanted to know more about the toy and and how they could. How does that work? How, why is it's so funny that he's got it and. The business of, of, of data getting trapped within it is is very comedic. And it feels he's trying to give this this serious presentation uh, and he's he's trapped within it. And it, it does. It's a nice balance, I think. I feel like data is running a constant experiment that is putting his own processes into as much of a human like structure and framework as he can from an internal level so that when he's doing that and he's stuck he's trying not to use more uh, bandwidth or more strength and dexterity than a human could in order to experience what it is to try and get out of it like data could clearly just pull hard enough to to get out of the thing one way or another and he's logical enough to know that it's no big deal to break this little piece of uh, you know, bamboo or wicker or whatever it's made out of. But I, I like to think that that's part of the reason he has problems with so many little human interaction, things like that, is on a metal level. You know, the writers didn't go this far, but who the, who the hell knows? They were smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> was it you, uh, Jimmy, that mentioned that, that it was the, uh, the kids who were in the conference room ahead of time who left... Yeah, the, the kids leave it. No, it was oh, Eric. Yeah, he brought up uh, before how the a clever little bit of sh- one showing Riker knows everybody on the ship, uh, and Eric had a funny line about knowing all the single moms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and oh, right. like, like Peyton I mean, Manning. Riker would know the names right. of every single kid on that <laughs> yeah. ship. And, uh, Absolutely, they he planted would. it, and it was you know the the very beginning of this this career long exploration that Brent Spiner had with uh, the character of Data of being the foil of I'm the mirror of what's good and bad about all, everyone around me and 
trying to uh, uh, explore the human condition. And that was his early foray into frustration and being duped and uh, showing that, you know, even though you're smart, maybe you're not as smart as you think you are. Although that's something that we never see with Wesley. I will cut you. (laughs) How dare you? There is definitely a lack of Wesley in this episode. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, Well, they make up for it on the next one. Yes, which I'm very excited about. Don't think I'm not (laughs) extremely excited. I'm trying to focus on this episode. Thank you. It's hard enough. It's just in the back of my head this whole time. Uh, I love, I love the sort of tail end of the, of the handcuff gig or uh, uh, I love the tail end of the finger handcuff uh, gag as well because they end up sending a box of it over to the Ferengi vessel which is just such a it's just a little ornery moment a little ornery yeah it's a strong callback yeah. right <laughs> reminiscent now, of okay, tribbles importantly have we have we had the ornery ornery talk we thing? have not I, I always say it both ways where do you come to, down on this um I say ornery um, naturally but sure. I think ornery is funnier so I, I choose to say ornery but I was I was raised with alright this is fair it's one of two words that I always come back to uh, for my particular accent and I definitely grew up with ornery yeah. and, I, and I definitely grew up with the word L-A-W-Y-E-R being pronounced the way that it is spelled Lawyer. Law, lawyer. Lawyer. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to lawyer, like y'all say. <laughs> you are a consummate professional that you can just drop into any accent like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, it sucks. Like, the older I get, the, the more of my Missouri comes right back out into my Missouri. voice. And it, it's, it's, it's probably. I'll be 10 feet underground <laughs> before I recognize Missouri. <laughs> I just miss the days when all actors had the continental a- accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a fantastic time, it was. <laughs> see, I see it. There, in front of me. Wow. <laughs> uh, but that business is so good because it, you know, it, it, it establishes the weirdness of the, uh, the, the, the Ferengi kind of problem, right? Like, I think it's, tr- it's trying to be a metaphor. Like, there's no good way to get out of this situation uh, without... Uh, breaking the rules, I guess, to a certain extent, right? Like you have to do what Picard does, which is come forward, pull the thing out and, you know, change it. And then that's, a, I think, feel like uh, what Riker ends up doing uh, kind of at the end. He's like, look, this is the facts. Uh, this is what we believe. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of poignant now when so much of our political discourse is about like, this is what's real, not what the lies of, of the Ferengis are saying. Like, let me just tell you, what I think and honestly feel. And if you believe that we're, and this is, you know, part of the test at the end, Riker says, uh, if you actually believe these accusations, then yes, you should act on them. But I'm going to show you why that's, that that's false and does so and comports himself with enough dignity that the, uh, uh, portal, uh, the person who's in charge of this last, last outpost of this, uh, Taka, uh, uh, empire Taku Taka. Am I getting it right? Um, Takan, that's what it was. T K O. There you go. Takan Empire um, believes him, right? Yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing to see a show that is so optimistic about 
the logic and reason winning at the end. And the logic and reason is mostly pretty straightforward. I mean, if you go to reason.com, that's not the case. So, like, uh, we see in real life how reason just gets twisted into another kind of way to, you know, serve a narrative that you were already committed to. It's nice to see moments in shows like this where you can just kind of go, really? You're just... look. Listen to these guys. These guys are clearly just not making sense. Allow me to put it in such a way as to make it understandable to logical people such as we. Like, I see why this is a, a, a comforting kind of show to watch. Again, I have to say I love how we get to that moment, too. How we get to the decision uh, of how they're going to proceed. Because we see this wonderful, you know, meeting in the conference room where Picard mm. actually listens to everybody. He takes a moment to check in with each of his officers and to, to really consider and listen to what they're doing. And, and they are not of the same uh, voice on that at all. You've got sort of the bloodthirsty side of the equation and then the sort of, well, this is a more sensitive situation. Maybe we need to handle this a little more psychologically. Yeah, I love that. And I love the way that Picard just very naturally solicits advice. You know, he's just like, any thoughts? Any thoughts? LaForge, I haven't heard from you. You know, tell, tell me what you think. And the officers very honestly give their feedback. And he, you know, Picard makes his assessment. And it's... it's. And isn't it Jordy that basically says he doesn't have anything useful to add? Yeah. And, I mean, that's awesome, too. Like, to show that... And I hesitate to have spoken up about this at all because it's contrary to what the moment tells us. Is it's You don't need to participate in every decision. <laughs> like, if you don't have anything to add and everybody else does, great. I don't have anything to add. And that can be a useful part of the discussion. It was just a neat little thing that you don't see very often in scenes. Well, it's like interesting that. in some of the critiques uh, that I've run across, the conference room is... is um, is a device that's been given some attitude. Like how many times do they go to the conference room and it becomes sort of what the cane that Star Trek leans on supposedly. Uh, I'm interested to see how much of that plays out, but I think it's a really great character device in that it gives you the opportunity to learn a little bit about your other uh, characters and actors by asking them, what would you do? And then we get, like you were saying that, the volatility and then the the reason sort of the measured temperance that Jordy LaForge is like we get a little bit of these guys without having to spend an episode or uh you know a rape game flashback so it's refreshing that they were able to to concisely give you a bit of those characters and i will say i think it's interesting that people throw any attitude towards it like i think it I've always just assumed that whatever happens on the bridge is recorded and whatever happens in the conference room, you can speak freely mm. and give advice in such a way that you're not necessarily uh, on the hook forever. Like right. that's, even when I was a kid, I think I just assumed yeah. that you're in private in the conference room and on the bridge, everything is official. Everything's recorded. Everything's mm. there. That's know? a good point. actually. Um, but, but maybe not. Yeah, who knows? But that's no, a good, I'm not uh, a Starfleet officer. Yeah. That's how I'm going to write my next sci-fi pilot. <laughs> That's there why you he's go. asking people into his ready room. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do we? They got to be able to speak freely. What do we think of that first big fight that we get with the Ferengi, uh, with the amazing laser whips 
uh, that we don't see again for the Fringy uh, for for many, many years. Um, actually, Quark uh, in one of the episodes has uh, a, a, a tiny little Ferengi figurine with one of those whips in it, um, sort of as a callback to this episode. But my God, those noodle whips. I will say that I hate the noodle whips so much that I'm almost coming around the other side into loving them. <laughs> because coming right on the heels of the Thunder Fist from last episode, <laughs> like, there are two episodes before, I don't know, wherever the hell it was, but those two weapons together... Like, I kind of want to see them against each other, because if you mm. sling that laser from the whip and you catch it with the Thunder Fist, can you then punch them with a laser-activated Thunder yeah. Fist in addition <laughs> to the poison? Absolutely. Like, there's so many possibilities. I, uh, I just... What I think happened is they ran out of uh, time uh, to actually choreograph anything, so they made sure that one, of the, one, of the, one side had something that could shoot from a distance, and that's your big fight, by and large. And I thought it was interesting. Jimmy, do you have anything before I wanted to say I love Thunder Whips? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Eric uh, completely exhausted the Thunder Whip thing, I think. Um, very interesting to me that Worf gets his ass kicked not once, but twice by the Ferengi. And this is a, a an ongoing thing where Worf, the mighty Klingon warrior, gets beat up. <laughs> That's not, I mean, he does flip two of them with one move. Like, he does, like, a flip and gets both of them on their backs at oh, one point. True. I mean, how are you going to counteract the noodle whip? That's very difficult. I, I don't know. I, I assume they he had some Klingon, Klingon uh, mantra or some study from his youth that would have helped. But obviously, I was wrong. I overestimated the Klingon warrior mentality. I have fought many people with a pool noodle and they have been destroyed. Uh, so I don't see anything wrong with these whips. I, I like them. I think I think there was a bit of uh, the decision to try to create a lot of world building with these Ferengis during this episode, trying to be like, we're different than the Klingons. We're different than the Romulans. We're trying to set up a different antagonistic race. Uh, and that goes down to the weapons, right? Even the fact that Tasha Yar has her badass moment where she comes in with a phaser and she's like, okay, you know about the phasers. That's, that's the Federation weapon uh, that we are able to bring to right. this fight. You bring noodle whips. Um, but I like that it was weird and different, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's a different motion. A you have to kind of flick forward with your, with your hand to shoot something. I mean, we've never really seen anything like that in sci-fi before or since. Well, because it's an inefficient way to That's aim. what makes it cool. It's inefficient and it's, weird. Right. I'm trying to imagine that this is real. The real world of the Frankie. They're like, we want something old. We want something new. We got the laser whip. You gotta, you gotta swish it out, but then the laser's gonna go. It's old and new. It's old and new. Why are you Larry David all the time? I don't know. I don't know. It's a hell of a salesman. <laughs> I'm down. That was the pitch. That was the pitch in the, in the writer's room, I'm sure. I'll take two for sure. So what, what else would you love to say about this episode before we bring it to a close? Um, looking at it again now, some 30-odd years later, uh, what, what strikes you as an adult? Uh, or can you go back in time and place yourself in your, in your young brain, <laughs> your young, nubile brain? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily my young brain, but looking at it now, I can see there are 
through lines through this that actually feel like it was written. I don't think it was the way it was produced, but the way it was written felt a little bit more like they were trying to make a commentary on um, the infusion of Asian products in the United States uh, during the 80s. Like it has a it has a feeling of like gung ho that uh, Michael Keaton movie and, and, and kind of that idea that like Japanese and and uh, Asian made products are taking over capitalism. Right. And that, wait, that was our thing. Capitalism was was our thing. You can't take that over. And I and, you know, that's from the, the Sun Tzu quotes uh, that Riker kind of brings out, as well as uh, the, you know, the finger cuffs uh, uh, having that kind of connotation. Um, you know, it reminds me now of the uh, Trade Federation and Phantom Menace and how that had gone uh, towards that stereotype less than the, 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 the Jewish stereotype that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so I don't know if that was necessarily a part of the conception when they were writing this, but I'm thinking about it now and wondering if that was their intention was to try to make these Ferengi um, playing upon those parts of uh, the American consciousness similar to the way that uh, Klingons and Romulans played upon the Russian uh, part of the conscientiousness back in the 60s. Oh, I think that's definitely true. And, and I think it becomes even more clear when you look at the stereotypes that were used uh, kind of throughout to other those two groups. Uh, a lot of it included the idea that they weren't as technologically advanced as us. So you see the stuff with their clothes t- tending towards the fur look and tending towards kind of a, a implication that they don't have the same kind of easily synthesized materials that we do. You know, there, there are a lot of, of, of kind of savage tropes applied to these guys as well, even though the dialogue says they're of an equal to us, uh, you know, of, of an equal level with us uh, technologically. It's, it's just a, a bevy of very strange, uh, probably racist decisions kind of all throughout. On that note, this has been re-engaged. Uh, oh, no, I was going to say, and on that note, uh, <laughs> let's talk about kids. Because, uh, Greg, your girls watched this episode. Uh, and so I am curious as to what their thoughts were, um, speaking of getting young, fresh minds uh, to, to take a look at this episode. So let's take a listen, yeah? Yes, let's listen. They have nothing to do with capitalism or uh, uh, stereotypes, but we'll, we'll hear what they have to think about these Ferengi. Welcome to Kid Trek. This is where I talk to my daughters, Edna. Hello. She's nine. And Fiona. Hello. She is seven. About the episode of Star Trek we just saw called The Last Outpost. This is the first time we get to meet the Ferengi. Uh, Fiona, what did you think of the Ferengi, this new alien race with their big ears? Um, I thought they were a little bit strange because they had super big ears and their forehead was super weird with their like wrinkly nose and their teeth. Edna, what do you think about the Ferengi? I think that they are strange like Fiona said, but they, they're like really, they're just weird. (laughs) (laughs) Did you think they were honorable or honest? No, I think they're tricksters and they're um, traitors. Tricksters. Yeah, they don't listen. They're just free. They're trying to be like kids a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're really like, they move their arms in weird ways. Yeah, what do you think that was all about? I don't know. It's probably just the way that their bodies were made, though. What were 
some of your favorite moments about your favorite characters? I know you've been uh, a really big fan of Tasha Yar so far. Yeah. I like when she's, um, she come like when they're all um, stunned, she comes, like when they wake up, she's like, comes with the controller thing. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. What did you think about how she was fighting back when they were being uh, strange to her? She was just, um, she didn't really care. She just um, didn't care what they thought and kicked them away. Yeah, she kicked the, like, fog away. Yeah. Uh, Fiona, what did you think about the uh, the Data having the, the Chinese finger trap on his fingers? It was hilarious. It's like, um, Captain, um... Can I have some help? <laughs> it's like um, the guy with the blind glasses. I forgot mm-hmm. his name. Jordy. Um, yeah, but he he was like my hero. <laughs> he was and like then that. they were like laughing. Did you like that they sent those to the Ferengi at the end? I remember that because um, <laughs> they sent them because well. Because their fingers could get trapped in them. Right, they wanted to get their fingers trapped in and them. And then I also remember they, there was kids first in their the place, and I was like, "Did the kids leave that there?" That this funny. has one of my favorite ending moments where they have Jordy is now stuck in <laughs> the trap, and uh, they have the uh, the shot where Data comes and presses the button. Yeah, that was oh. so funny. Commander Data. My favorite part is actually one of. Um, the previous episodes, when he says information, he's like, which is not very important right now. <laughs> he is set um, up early as being like the funny part of the show, isn't he? He, um, he's definitely, <laughs> he's definitely something. Right. And I'm going to ask you about, what do you think about uh, Captain Picard and Dr. Crusher's relationship? I think that they appreciate each other but they also don't want to show it they were like Hmm. um they're like i like you like i like you but i don't want to show anyone that because i don't know yeah did you guys think that uh commander Riker was being real uh mean during this episode it's Commander Riker, he's the, he's the tall guy. He was the leader of the the away party with the brown hair oh yeah i noticed that he was being very bossy. Yeah? Did it remind you of me? No. It reminded <laughs> me... It reminded me of... Um, yeah. And then what did you think about the idea that there was this um, was this last outpost from an ancient empire that is no longer there? That's kind of a weird... Yeah. I, cool was, idea. Yeah, it was so cool. It was really cool because I think that it's like... In my head, I imagined it as a land that was like perfect... Mm. Kind of like the Lorax. It was like a land that perfect, and then it got a lot of um, lightning. And yeah, I think it was actually like a power plant. Like it was meant to like draw energy and have that for the empire. And At least that's the impression I got. Oh my gosh! What? Um, I just remembered about when the little people. The Ferengi. Yeah, the Ferengis. They they took their badges. Yeah. And then I was like, looks like gold, <laughs> tastes like gold. Um. It, and um, at the end, they actually have the badges back. Yeah. Which is a little bit like, you forgot that happened, didn't you? It was weird looking at them without their, their insignia on their, yeah, on their left breast. Yeah, but I didn't breast. really notice it. 
wait. I was yeah. like, wait, there's something wrong with this. Why is there some... Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right, last question. Uh, what did you think of the the guy that was running the last outpost, the portal guy, and the, and the test that he was giving for Riker? What did you think about that, Edna? He was definitely like a god, and he was very powerful because and magical because he could... Like, he gave power back to the Earth when everyone was super cold and didn't have a lot of oxygen. And he gave power back. Like, Why do you think he did that? At it. Because he passed, um, Commander Riker passed the test. That's right. The test was not to fight. Yeah. That was pretty interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, thanks, guys, for joining Kid Track. Thank you, Fiona. And thank you, Edna. You're welcome. You are welcome. <laughs> Fascinating. They just wanted more Tasha Yar. That's all they want. They want Tasha Yar kicking butt. This is great. Yeah. Hell I yeah. have to say, I was the same. Uh, we'll we'll get into these episodes with Tasha, um, you know, later on in this season. But she was important to me when I was that age. And it was, you know, I, I look at Tasha's, you know, uh, career as, uh, uh, you know, I, I look at Tasha and the way they introduce her and the way they use her character as having some problematic issues. And of course... There's some acting issues, uh, especially with some of the first episodes. But God damn it, if she just wasn't an icon to me back when I was was that age. There weren't a lot of, you know, there was there was Annie Lennox <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a few kind of um, androgynous turns by um, uh, Madonna, uh, you know, around this time. But like, oh, I, I right. feel like there was uh, a moment for uh women characters that looked like like Tasha and acted like Tasha and I, I feel like unbeknownst to her and probably even the writers like they, they kind of did set a tone for um, you know the growth of uh, more badass female characters in sci-fi and genre television going forward I mean Grace Jones had just done A View to a Kill what a, a year two years before this so like yeah there, there, there was definitely a little bit more room in genre TV for but her Hamlet badass. was definitely boomerang <laughs> no, I don't know. I think she had. Some I would say <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a long <laughs> career. The Destroyer was definitely Grace Jones's Hamlet. I'm oh, Destroyer is amazing. Amazing, amazing. Well, top to bottom, that movie. Well, we have once again uh, gotten to the end of this fantastic episode. Uh, thank you so much to Greg and Jimmy and Eric for joining me here, and okay. we look forward to next week where we go where no one has gone before. AKA the Wesley Crusher episode. <laughs> and I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. I'm going to stay at this level of excitement from now until the next time we talk. Mm-hmm. So just be ready. I believe She's that. She's going to melt. She's going to melt. I'm going to put on my Wesley Crusher outfit. Thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy D is, of course, at the Jimmy G on Insta. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and Greg underscore Tito at Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for the saucer section to re-engage. <laughs>